Not having to deal with these micro and macro aggressions that we deal with in the global north, in the skin that we're in. That's why I stay here because Asia is cheaper. Like Asia is the for real soft life. You got people paying $200 a month and they have their own private swimming pool. You know what I'm saying? So what really keeps me in here in Africa is just I'm able to blend in. I'm able to be myself. I'm not fetishized. I'm not a novelty. That's not something that I'm looking for personally. So that's wellness. Welcome to Flourish in the Foreign, an award-winning podcast that celebrates, elevates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad while exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman with Trinidadian roots, podcaster, business strategist, and entrepreneur based in Valencia, Spain. Hey everyone, welcome to Flourish in the Foreign Season 4. Can you believe it? We are four seasons into this thing. And I am so excited to give you guys this next season. For those of you that are new to the podcast, thank you so much for stopping by and checking it out. I know you're going to like it. So just go ahead and subscribe to this podcast. You can do it. Trust me. You will not regret it. If you haven't gone to the website lately, I encourage you to go check out flourishintheforeign.com. It is really where this podcast comes to life. It's where you get to see the pictures of all the guests. You get to learn more about them. If you want to get in touch with any of the guests, there are all the ways you can do so on their show notes page. And there are amazing resources to help you not only move, but to cultivate a life well-lived abroad. And check out our blog. We already have some really great articles there, so definitely check that out. And in the coming months, there'll be even more great content coming for you. All articles about what it means and how to flourish in the foreign. Now, this podcast is a labor of love, but labor nonetheless. So I want to ask you all to please support this podcast. And there are so many ways for you to support Flourish in the Foreign. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash Flourish Foreign and buy me a coffee or two maybe some vegan ice cream. You can support the podcast by making sure you are subscribed to this podcast, not only on whichever podcast player you listen on, whether that be Spotify, Apple, Google, or what have you, make sure you subscribe, but make sure that you are following and subscribe to the YouTube channel, Flourish in the Foreign, Instagram, Flourish Foreign, Twitter, Flourish Foreign, and we're also on Pinterest. So make sure you're following and subscribing on all of the platforms. Also, if you haven't left a review for the podcast, go ahead and write one. You might be saying, Christine, I just discovered this podcast. I have nothing to review. That's okay. By the end of this episode, I know you're going to want to rate this podcast five stars and leave a glowing review. 
And of course, please continue to share this podcast with your friends, your family, on your social media, on your blog, on your vlog, on a log, whatever you want to do. I really do appreciate it. Now that we have that out of the way, on to the episode. Season four, episode one. Today's episode features Tadre. And from the age of 18, Tadre has lived, worked, schooled, and played in Africa. She is a California native living her best life in Nairobi, Kenya. Tadre is a multi hyphenate creative following her bliss as a writer, model, and wardrobe stylist. She is the host of the series Blacksit to Africa on YouTube and Off the Beaten Path on Quayle TV. I'm going to let Tadre tell you all about it. My name is Tadre Delora Moignet. I am 48. I am in Nairobi, Kenya, and I have been living abroad full time since January 2018 started my journey in Zanzibar, Tanzania. Although I have been coming to Africa since I was 18 years old. So we talking about early 90s. I consider Los Angeles, California to be my hometown. I was actually born in Bloomington, Indiana. My parents were students at Indiana University in Bloomington. And then they moved me to LA when I was two years old. Although I did graduate high school at John Burroughs High School in Burbank, California. And I can also say that I did my junior high school years in Indiana as well. So I grew up between Indiana and LA, but really, you know what? I tell people I'm a big city girl with Midwestern values. (laughs) And so as far as influences to live abroad, my mom gave me a clip out from a newspaper of kids that were studying. They were going to high school on a cruise ship. And I don't really remember what age I was. I might've been in junior high. And she was like, I want you to do that. Like there was no instruction. There was no other guidance than that. There were no phone calls, no applications. It was like, you should do this. And I guess that kind of stuck with me. I've always had a curiosity about the world. Growing up in Southern California, you're surrounded by people from all over the world, chiefly Mexico, Central America, a little bit of South America, definitely people who are first and second generation Asia. So I was just a curious kid. And then... I went to college and I minored in African studies and that was all she wrote. So UCSD, uh, the University of California, San Diego was where that was like my first choice and they have a great international school there, but it was too close to home. Like I was just itching to get away from my family and be an independent adult. So I ended up at Indiana University, which is actually where my parents, my uncles went, my aunts, that's where I ended up. And 
I was walking across campus and there were these huge posters everywhere. Study abroad in Spain, study abroad in Australia, study abroad in France, in London. And I was waiting for the study abroad poster in Africa, some African country that never happened. So I found my way to the foreign exchange, not foreign exchange, foreign studies office, which is basically like a closet. And I was like, hey, I want to study abroad in Africa. And the woman just put her head down and she was like, we don't have a study abroad program in Africa. I'm so sorry, but you are highlighting the reason for us to have one and I will work on this for you. And she did. And her first placement for me was in Malawi. And I actually was studying Chichewa, which is one of the national languages of, languages of Malawi. So... I was all set, ready to go. And then they were having strikes, like the students were striking and I was told that they were targeting foreign students and they told me I couldn't go. And I was like, but wait, I'm black. They're not going to target me. (laughs) And she was like, no, you can't go. So I ended up going to study abroad with, what's the name of that program? Crossroads Africa. And the kicker with them is that you had to come up with all the money to volunteer. And I was a broke ass student. So I had to raise money for my airfare, all of this stuff. And it was in Zimbabwe where I was placed. I was placed in Zimbabwe in Sharetsi refugee camp, working with refugees from Mozambique. And I was there for a summer. And that was my first experience in Africa. I asked Tadre to share some of her experience in Zimbabwe and how that experience impacted her. It was huge for me because there were a lot of people rooting for me, raising money for me. I was selling raffle tickets, Delta Sigma Theta, that would be my future sorority. They gave me a scholarship to go or would it be a grant? They just gave me money to go. And it was my first time in New York. So we had our orientation in New York City. (laughs) And I was just wide-eyed, bushy-tailed. This was probably 1992. And then we get on this plane to to Zimbabwe. And I was one of three Black volunteers in my group. All of the volunteers were American except for one. One guy happened to be like basically the son of some major politician in Chile. (laughs) And he just wanted a real experience in Africa before he went back to his country to run it. (laughs) It was so interesting. But because I had been studying Africa, I didn't have any preconceived notions except that it was a place I wanted to be. But I was very conscious of everyone else's preconceived notions and the stereotypes. And I remember we met with the camp director and he told us that he did not want us taking any photographs. And I asked him for permission to take photographs because I said, people don't believe that you guys have cars. They don't believe that high rise buildings exist. And I want to take these 
photos to and bring them back home and let people know that, yes, we do have cars, we do have high-rise buildings. Not everyone is living in an adobe structure. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I wanted to show people what the real Africa was. After her experience in Zimbabwe, I asked Tadre, what happened next? Where did she go and what did she do? I don't really remember what happened when I came back from Zim, but I did study abroad at the University of Ghana the last semester of my senior year. And that was really life transformative. I cut my hair off. <laughs> I went natural. I came back to school and word had spread like wildfire that I had cut my hair off and I was known for this super straight, relaxed hair that used to blow in the wind. Like that was my calling card, apparently. And I recall people running up to me, girls, right? And they were just like, I heard you cut your hair off. Are you still cute? Like it was, it was, <laughs> it just, it just changed the way I saw the world and how I wanted to live in it. Being in Ghana at that time where there weren't a whole lot of African-Americans like there are now was really affirming for me in seeing black people everywhere. And I remember when I cut my hair off, I felt like I was just floating on air. I just felt like I just lost so much that I needed to leave, like just dead weight. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother passed while I was there. I wasn't able to get home for the funeral. And I just went to the ocean and I sat at the ocean and just stared out and talked to her and prayed for her. And I felt like she was there. My dorm was actually in this space called, well, the university is in Legon. And Legon is, they told me in tree, it means the hiding place. So where my dorm was situated was on the edge of the campus. And it was just like marsh, tall grass. And I was told that when they would bring Africans in from the hinterlands, they would hide in this area to try to get away from the enslavers. So there was a lot there. And then I became even more rooted in my African heritage. Not so much because of the Africans, to be real with you, because my professors, they had gone to school, you know, in Oxford and other places in Europe where they had been indoctrinated in this bullshit fallacy that Africans had only contributed to the world via dance and music, right? But I became more rooted in my culture from other African-Americans and Afro-Caribbeans who were also studying there. And they were mostly from SUNY schools in New York and UC schools in California. From her experience studying in Ghana, I was really intrigued, not only how that experience affected her, but what she decided to do after. Um, from, from Ghana, what, was, what else did I do? I was an international monitor for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa upon Mandela's release. So that was another pivotal point for me. 
And then I was uh, with the United States Peace Corps and USAID in Namibia, basically after Namibia's independence from South Africa. Their teachers only had a 10th grade education, and that was by design, right? We don't want to educate a populace that we're trying to keep under our feet. So my job was to go in and train teachers using a curriculum that was a combination of what USAID came up with and also the Ministry of Education in Namibia. And I was also a community developer. I had quite a bit of experience in Africa. And then I came back to Washington, D.C. From there, I opened a women's shoe boutique. So I was an entrepreneur for about seven and a half years. And from there, I just decided to move to Madrid. So I had a woman's shoe boutique and the Spanish Trade Commission had sponsored American retailers to go to their trade shows. And it was in one of them was in Madrid. And I fell in love with the city. Like I move about the world, not based so much on what people say or what's Instagrammable. I move based on what pulls me. And just the vibration in Madrid, I felt it. I was like, I'm coming back. At the time, I was like married. Marriage was on the rocks. I was like, nah. I went to a jazz club in Madrid. And (laughs) I don't want to, no shade. But the band was like Puerto Rican. And they were singing Afro-American jazz tunes. And they weren't very good. And I was like. I'm going to go back home. I'm going to take some singing lessons and I'm going to come back. This is how I'm going to make my money. (laughs) So I went back home. I was like, look, I'm leaving you. (laughs) And this is what I'm going to do. And he was like, no, let's work on this. So I stayed. I stayed maybe a few more years. And... Again, still not working. So I decided, hey, you know what? Let me move to Madrid. Moved to Madrid in the heat of summer. And I didn't realize, look, it's landlocked, honey. It was hot. Everybody, all the Madrilenos, if I'm saying it correctly, all the Madrilenos, they were going to the coast anyway. So I said, let me go to the coast. Went to the coast and I was in Mallorca for three months, I believe. Money was running out international recession. Spaniards were literally in bread lines. The Spanish government was paying people to go back home. I said, let me take my ass back home. (laughs) That's what I did. So that didn't last long. I wanted to go back to something that Tadre said. She had mentioned that she was an international monitor for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. And so I asked her to really discuss how she even became a part of that and what was her experience during that time. Okay, so I was probably like 23, 24. I was a law student and national, was it the National Association of Black Lawyers, perhaps? They um, were gathering students and other lawyers, I lost students and other lawyers to go and monitor these TRC hearings. And it was just a summer, but it was a transformative summer because number one, I stayed with families. I stayed with a colored family in Mitchell's Plain in Cape Town. 
And if anyone is unfamiliar with Mitchell's Plain, it's the hood. It's the hood in Cape Town. When people think of South Africa, they think, you know, Cape Town and just how posh it is, etc. Nah, not where I was staying. But everyone was so generous to me. The families I stayed with, like they gave up their bed and slept on chairs in their living room so that I could sleep. At the same time, they also held this anti-blackness, but not with me because, you know, I'm a foreign black, but they still had their biases for local blacks. Right. So that was interesting. I stayed with a black family in Soweto. Again, the generosity there. And that just came about because me and my homegirl got put out. <laughs> by some woman that she had was connected with through her father's church. She was a Harvard student and just happened. My two of my friends just happened to be in essay at the same time. I was all of us students and we were staying somewhere and this girl put her out because she wouldn't pray with her and da da da. And then the dudes we was hanging out with that night, they was, they happened. Thank God they waited for us to make it into the apartment And when we didn't get in, they was like, you know what? You can stay with my sister. So we ended up at like three, four in the morning going to this older woman's house. She's probably like my age now. And she was like, that's all right. Y'all stay in my room. She made us breakfast, lunch, dinner. Look, it was an experience. (laughs) But the TRC hearings... Obviously, I aligned with Black South Africans. And of all the Africans in the continent, Black South Africans, their history is most similar to ours. And so sitting there day after day, taking notes, listening to these old white men who constructed the apartheid, talk about the shit that they did to dehumanize and disenfranchise Black Africans strategically, consistently, systematically. It was mind-blowing. You know, people will dramatize old white men with cigars sitting in a dark, smoky room, in a conference room, planning the New World Order. That's not a conspiracy. That happened. Down to, we're going to remove these people We're going from their ancestral homeland. We're going to put them in an area where don't nothing grow. And even though they have really large families, we're going to construct these tiny homes for them. And to further dehumanize them, we'll put the toilet outside. Like all of that, they thought that down to just the tiniest detail. And then I'm sitting next to people whose families were directly impacted by those policies, by those skirmishes. And people were crying next to me. People were trying to hold back emotions. And those people, they got off because if you you confessed your crimes, you received amnesty. All those old white men were receiving amnesty. Who wasn't the foot soldiers? the black foot soldiers who were just doing what they were told. They were getting life. So it was interesting for me as a young law student to see that. 
And then afterwards, I would interview the judges. I would talk to the lawyers and everyone kept saying, we just need for the old guard to die. Once the old guard dies, we will have freedom. But we see how that works out, right? It don't work out like that. So after her time in South Africa, Tadri ends up in Namibia, which we actually had a really great side conversation because right after I graduated from law school, I was sent on a business trade mission to Namibia. And it was really cool to compare our notes about the country specifically because Namibia is one of those countries that I still don't think a lot of people visit nor do they move to. So I'm really excited for you to hear about Tadre's experience in Namibia. However, I do want to give you a trigger warning. There will be some discussion of domestic violence in this next section. So if you'd prefer to skip this section of the episode, you can just skip ahead about eight minutes and I'll see you on the other side. Yeah, I'm going to be real. Namibia is like my least favorite African country. Number one, I was salty that I was there because I just wanted to graduate law school and I wanted to work. And when I went to different NGOs in D.C. for work, they were like, oh, we see that you've had you've done this, you've done this in Africa, but you haven't spent long periods of time in Africa. Everyone in this office has done Peace Corps. Have you done Peace Corps? So I literally joined the Peace Corps so that I could have two years under my belt of African or experience in Africa. And I just, I didn't want to do it, but I did it. And Namibians will tell you themselves that they feel like they don't have much of a culture. They feel like the Germans really took that from them and other Europeans really took that from them. When I look at them, I see culture, but it's just not expressed like you would see it in, let's say, West Africa. And I see that a lot. East Africans always compare themselves to what West Africans, they love their culture. You can see West Africans are more boisterous. (laughs) They're more vibrant in appearance, but I wouldn't say that they have more cultural expression than East Africans or Southern Africans. They didn't know what to make of me in Namibia. Like my hair, I was damn near bald. I kept my hair really short And me trying to explain to them that I was a descendant of those who were stolen, they just didn't get it. They asked me, what language do your parents speak? Your grandparents, their parents. I'm like English, you know what I mean? So then I would tell people because at that time, their president was married to an African-American woman and there was only one TV station. So he had mandated that they show roots. So I would say to people, okay, do you remember roots? Yes, I remember Roots. Okay, that's my story. And they would say, but we thought it was just a story. No, that was real. And you find that throughout Africa, like they think it's just a story. Then you would run into the older memes, the older women, and they have all of these necklaces around their necks. And they will say, oh, I remember them. We were told stories about them. We traded them for beads. Imagine. They traded people 
for beads, honey. So them Europeans had them people thinking that <laughs> the little glass beads was really something. <laughs> and then you, the woman telling you this, she's just got a rack of beads around her neck. So um, our training was three months in, not Ventuk. What's the name? Oka, Okahanja. I can't remember the name of that town. But because I'm a fashionable individual, they paired me with another fashionable individual, a fashionable host, and her name was Fongi. And <laughs> Fongi was interesting in that she hosted me, her and her husband, very patriarchal place. Her husband was like, oh, I got two women in the house. Where's my dinner? He would come home looking at me like, you ain't cook? I was like, bruh, I'm not your wife and you're getting paid to host me. So they had to say him straight about that. And then I just remember Fongi came to me one day and she was like, uh, yeah, she was hyped because she found out that her husband had been cheating with her hair braider and she wanted me to ride out with her. She was she was like, let's go. I was like, no, we will not. I will not be helping you jump your hair braider. It was interesting. The uh, one really traumatic thing happened. This is just how patriarchal uh, Namibia is. The neighbor was a police chief and he would, the domestic violence in that home was off the charts. Just imagine being so scared that you run out of your home buck naked, trying to get away from your husband. So she ran out, the wife ran out the house, not not Fongi, but the neighbor. She ran out the house in the middle of the night, screaming and yelling, buck naked, banging on the door, trying to get in. And my host turned off the lights. They said, do not say anything. Do not open the door. The last time we let her in, her husband shot through the window. They still had the, the, the pierced glass to prove it. Police cars were driving by, but they would do nothing because the perpetrator was the police chief. And so her family, and this was like routine, her family would come and remove her and the child from the house and within a week or so, she'd go back. So that traumatized me. <laughs> but yeah, my experience in Namibia, they put me so far away. Like I was the most remotely placed volunteer. I was in a village that was a pseudo village. It was just a village where people would come for school, for work to get petrol, to get frozen fish. And then on the weekends, everybody would go to their farms. So I would pretty much be the only person left in the village, Okongo, Namibia, over the weekends. It was bizarre. Um, they had never seen a Black American. They were not interested in entertaining a Black American volunteer. They had previous Peace Corps volunteers there. All of them had been white. All the white volunteers were a novelty, but me, they didn't really see what was so special about me. And it was a very, very lonely time for me. No TV, no cell phone. 
And it just gave me a lot of time to think, a lot of time to read and just be alone with my thoughts. And that was when I had the dream about the women's shoe boutique. And I think that was the reason, like being in such isolation was the reason why I was able to hear God speaking to me so clearly. I was so bored one day that I followed a dung beetle. So the the dung beetles, I find a little piece of cow dung and these little beetles, they stand up on their hind legs and they push it with their front legs. They roll it until it just accumulates, right? And then they lay their eggs in it. Do you know, you know how slow a dung beetle moves? I followed that thing from my, that's how bored I was one day. And so people used to tell me, do not go too deep into the bush because Namibia bordered uh, Angola. And I thought they would tell me not to go deep into the bush because of sexual assault. But no, because of the war, there was a civil war raging in Angola. And at a certain point, the U.S. ambassador evacuated. He demanded an evacuation of all Americans that were within a certain kilometers from the borders. And I was very close. So when they came to get me, listen, it was all I could do to keep the smile off my face. So I think most of you who are listening understand what the concept of black sitting is. It's a play off of the term Brexit, which was developed because of the UK's decision to exit the European Union. And so Blackxit refers uh, primarily, perhaps, for Black Americans deciding to leave the United States and to live somewhere else. And so I was talking to Tadre about what does it mean and what her thoughts are on the concept of black sitting, specifically to the continent of Africa. And uh, this is what she had to say. I'm definitely a proponent of black sitting to Africa. You know, I have this podcast now and thank you for encouraging me to start a podcast. It's called Black Sit to Africa. And, you know, there's 54 countries in Africa. I tell people, choose one. But you hit the nail on the head. Don't be coming here looking for acceptance. You go to a therapist for that. You may or may not get that. You just come here to live your best life without being under a white gaze, without dealing with racism, white inferiority complex, etc. That's what you come here for. But yeah, it's interesting in Ghana... People would tell me, welcome home all the time, welcome home. And most of the time it didn't even feel genuine because the welcome home was the start of the conversation to, I'm trying to sell you something. I want something from you, especially like around Cape Coast where, you know, they know that so many of us from the diaspora will be there to see the door of no return. However, I got a welcome home in a place I didn't expect it. When I didn't think I even needed it, but I did. It was the welcome home that I didn't know I needed. And I was taking the bus from Uganda to Rwanda. And this brother hadn't really said nothing to me the whole trip. I mean, it's pretty much like an overnight bus ride. 
And when we got to Kigali, he got up and he said, you're home now. Welcome home. This place is your place. This is yours, your home. And my experience in Africa has really been profound, especially at this point in my life, at this level of development, because we were lied to. And coming to East Africa in 2018, it was just beauty on beauty. And I'm like, this is our inheritance. This is what they've been trying to keep us away from. And then you come here and you see all kinds of white folks from all over the world living their best lives. They're on vacation. They're on extended holiday. They're working. They're on contract. They're doing missionary work. They just here owning, buying up beachfront property, Mountain View property, <laughs> safari property, uh, property in the savannah where it's like they see zebras and giraffes every day. But meanwhile, they telling our black asses, oh, you know, at a cocktail party, you're fortunate that you're here in America because otherwise you'd be starving in Africa, which is so far from the truth. So that's my little two cents. I encourage people to come here and live their best lives, figure out where your soul just vibrates to its fullest. And if you don't want to stay there 24-7, 365 days out of the year, consider vacationing. Consider a vacation home. Consider an investment property. Think about your legacy. Listen, you can buy an island in Uganda, Lake Victoria for 10,000 US dollars. By the time it's underwater, you'll be dead. <laughs> so, you know. Hey, everyone. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you are, be sure to support this podcast by going to buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign and buying me a coffee. You can also write a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and anywhere else you listen to the show. Thank you so much for listening and supporting. Now, back to the episode. You know, because Blackness is not monolithic, nor is womanhood, and then how we all are in the world, our lived experiences, our personalities, how we travel, it is not the same. I'm always really curious to ask my guests, what are their experiences being a Black woman abroad? And I'm always delighted and intrigued by the answers. I don't normally think about, oh, I'm a Black woman abroad until someone brings it to my attention. So I can definitely say throughout Europe, I was definitely fetishized and I don't like being fetishized. I think for someone who perhaps didn't get a lot of attention, maybe male attention, 
It might be a comforting thing to have people just want to touch you and want to be around you. And in Mallorca, I used to just walk down the road and men would just reach out and try to touch me. And I was like, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't do that. And then, like I said, I was running out of money. So I was broke. And there was this Canadian, this Canadian guy, what would he be called? Like a captain? Would it be called a ship captain? I forget what they call them. But Mallorca is the yachting capital of the world. I did not know this when I moved there. And so there were all of these people there for some sort of yachting festival. And then throughout Europe, wealthy people would rent a yacht and then they would hire this captain to take them around and bounce around the different islands in Europe or whatever. And he was interested in me. He was just like, I've never been with a dark woman before. He called me a dark woman. I was like, what? <laughs> this, let me tell you something. <laughs> I'm black. <laughs> you can call me black. You know what I'm saying? But I was considering for a moment because I had met up with an African-American guy and he was like, you better work what you got. <laughs> he was like, you better work what you got. I'm working what I got because he was a singer and he was not very good at it, but that's how he was making his money. And because he was black and they just like, Oh, they would bow down at this mediocre singer. Actually, he was less than mediocre. So he was like, you better work what you got. So I was even considering, I was like, I know I would have a place to live rent free. I'd be on a yacht skirting around the Mediterranean, but my morality would not allow me to do it. I remember I went to his apartment to meet him before we went out and he had these mannequins, these female mannequins in the house naked and one had like a cup like some things like draped around them or whatever but they were naked and I was like this dude he wanted to show me around he especially wanted me to see the bedroom I was like I can't let me just go home let me just go home but I met two black women one was african-american and she was a spectacular jazz singer she tours the world and she had an apartment building she was like girl you could just stay in my apartment one of my apartments for free and i had another sister who was from paris her parents were from martinique and she was living her best life she was coupled in Mallorca. And she was like, you can stay with me. But at the time, my pride was such that I was like, I can't live off of nobody. Let me just go home. <laughs> you know what I mean? But so that was pretty much my experience in Europe, just being fetishized. But the interesting thing for me was like, wow, there are some Black American men who really, what's the word? They talk so much shit about black women. Like why we're so undesirable. Why nobody wants to be with us. I'm like, it's whole legions of people that would love nothing more than to build a family with us. And then I would have European women. They would come up to me, Spanish women in particular. And they're, oh my God, I hate you. Look at your skin. Skin. Look at your smile. Look at your hair. And it was like they meant it as a compliment, right? So they were like basically idolizing me where in America, we want to be that. We are conditioned to have that. Whereas they're looking at us like, no, I want your skin. I want your body. I want your hair. I want what you have phenotypically. So that to me 
was really interesting. In Africa, the perception is like, I'm one of them. I recently just did a bunch of videos to show people like, this is Africans first impression of me. And everybody was like, she's Nigerian, she's Ghanaian, she's South African, she's Kenyan. We were asking other Africans on the street and they, and I didn't speak. So that's people's first impression. But then when you tell them that you're African American in some places that may be less developed, they'll hit you with, Oh, so you are nigga. Then you got to spend your time explaining that. And that is the power of American media. And one thing that Puffy said, now he's called love or Diddy. <laughs> one thing that he said that really stuck out to me, he said African-American culture is the United States most exported commodity. To the point where they don't realize, Africans don't realize that we're a numerical minority. When you tell them that we are 13% on a good day, they're like, what? Because all the media that they consume is black media. And then they know LeBron James. They know all of the exceptions. And so they think that the exception is the rule. But in Kenya, people are way more exposed and they just like, eh. you know, so for me, the challenge has been finding my tribe and in a place like Nairobi where people, they got, they try, they're really not looking to hang out with the novelty because I'm not a novelty to them. There's so many international people here that it's just like, oh, okay. So the friendships that I have been able to forge, they are genuine. So Tadra and I had a conversation about healthcare in Kenya and our conversation really centered around aging abroad, which I think is such a fascinating topic and something I'll definitely will be exploring in further episodes and on the blog on flourishingtheforeign.com. But specifically to Tadre, her vantage point is as a caregiver for her elderly mother. And Tadre shared her experience of caregiving in Kenya. So one thing people need to realize is that when you are, let's say, in a, let's just say developing nation, in particular Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, there's private and there's public. So when you see the statistics, the rankings of healthcare per country, there will be a balance between the private and the public. And there's more public than there is private, right? So you can see how that would affect the stats. So the situation with my mom was just, it was not good. You know, flourishing in the foreign is about wellness, black women and wellness. And if that's something, if I'm going to keep it 100, that's something I have been dealing with. I have had a complete shift in lifestyle. I am child free. I am a divorcee. And I've just been living life on my own terms, moving and shaking how I feel like it. And then I get a numerous calls and texts. Your mom is not well. And the reality is that she was an absentee parent for most of my life. 
So now she's here living with me. So there is being a caregiver, which is stressful. And then there's also being the caregiver of a parent who was neglectful. So my wellness and my journey with that is it's ongoing. And fortunately, I do have support. So I remember when, and she's a baby boomer. So I remember when one of her friends, who's a retired nurse, was communicating to me about my mom, who was in Indiana at the time. And I was like, I'm bringing her here. It just don't sit right for me to have her in some state-owned facility, state-run facility in Indiana. And I can't get to her when she needs me. And this woman was just like, oh, well, I Googled Kenya's healthcare and there are seven out of all the African countries and that's not going to be good for her. And I'm like, so what's the alternative? I'm her only child. Ultimately, I decided to bring her here. Fortunately, I have had people in my corner who were willing to help with that. And the healthcare that she gets, it's private. And it's very good. In fact, she wrote about it. My mom even wrote about how she was impressed with the health care. So it's um, it's less expensive than the U.S. But again, I don't have health care here. And that's probably something I should look into. That can be a little tricky living abroad. But like I have I've paid for health care for my housekeeper. They have a national health care program. It is, I want to say 6,500 shillings annually, which is roughly 58 US dollars annually, includes vision, includes dental for my housekeeper and her two children. Now I'm able to afford that, right? But my housekeeper, apparently it's a struggle for most people, but just imagine she can go and get her teeth looked after, her ulcers, all of this stuff. With my mom, when she got here, I took her to my chiropractor, get x-rays, etc. And again, when I go out of town, I'm able to have people stay at my house to look after my mom for 1,000 shillings per day. That's $8 a day. And I'm paying more than the average Kenyan would. There are Kenyans who are paying their nannies less than $3 a day to look after their most prized, not really possession, but you know, your offspring. I have another friend who is a former USC professor. She's retired here. There's a lot of African-Americans that are retired here. And they feel surrounded by community. They feel safe. In fact, I want to talk to them more about that just to encourage more of our people to come home. But I will say this is one of the things I have learned the hard way. Accessibility. Baby, if you in a wheelchair and you in Africa, mm -mm. it's hard enough in the global north, right? But just if you don't even have a strong upper body to where you can get around, they don't have the curbs that have the little slope. Like it's just, unfortunately, it's not a good place if you need assistance physically with a wheelchair, et cetera. 
But let me say this, the respect that people have for seniors in Kenya, Uganda, no. The way, like when I call an Uber for me and my mom and I'm like, can you please, I live on a big compound and you please you know, come as far as you can because my mom, she has trouble walking. Oh my goodness. The way people go out of their way for her. The other thing I should touch on is if you decide to, let's say, place your parent in a facility, it's relatively cheap here. You know what I'm saying? I looked into a place. I was like, oh, I think she would be happy here. She would have her own round cottage with a thatched roof and everything. I think it was like $1,200 US per month. That's something that her social security would cover. So that is something, that's something to consider. And it's something that I'm also thinking about. I'm like, okay, I'm about to be 50 next year. I'm child free, etc. What am I going to do? So I have a friend who's also African American. I can't say that, but she grew up in Miami, was born in Poland. And she's like, there, there's a lot of women like you and I. What's going to happen when we reach a certain age and we need assistance? So she's looking at going into that business of, you know, these caring facilities that will actually allow you to thrive and it won't be a, a fast decline. You know, living abroad isn't all roses. It's not all fresh coconut water in a hammock. It's just not. It's, it's life. You know what I mean? And so I asked Tadre to discuss some of the ups and downs she's experienced while living in Nairobi, some of the challenges she has experienced. I've been traveling for so long and living abroad for so long that I no longer go through those those ebbs and flows, which is natural, by the way. But I have had moments where I'm like, I just need to cool off of Kenyans for a little while. Let me just stay in the house and just be by myself, I had, oh my gosh. So it's interesting how you can go someplace and not know anyone and not really experience the place. There are some places you could just fall into the good stuff. And then there are some places where you really need somebody who lives there to show you around. And Nairobi, Kenya is one of those places. So I had come here before for work. I was filming a series that I was producing called Off the Beam Path. It was about international travel and fashion. And what I saw of Nairobi, I was like, nah. But then when I came back, I actually knew someone here and she took me to her Nairobi, her favorite restaurant. She had me doing yoga in Karua Forest. Like, I was like, oh no, I'm moving here. And the coast is just an hour away. I'm going to the coast for my birthday. Come on now. <laughs> and as a California girl, like I've missed the ocean. Like a lake, a lake is not an ocean, okay? <laughs> so the thing that really had me step back a little bit was, well, it's two things. One is the hand-to-mouth poverty mindsets. It's a lot, Christine. We are used to 
someone doing work for us and doing an amazing job and the customer always being right and they're wanting your repeat business and they want you to spread the word. Here, I want to say seven, maybe six times out of 10. That's not the case. I just want your money right now. I'm really not concerned with the product that I give you, et cetera, et cetera. I would say services are different, but in terms of products, I just be like, what is this? It's pretty bad. And I literally went to the police about a situation and this guy took my money (laughs) and the police were essentially on his side because he was Kenyan. And they didn't like me coming in there as a woman. At a certain point, I started cussing. So they was like, oh, she ain't got no respect. (laughs) You know what I mean? And then weeks after, they were calling me to come down there to pick up the item that I did not want. It was just, it was a mess. So that had me in the house. Like, let me just chill for a minute. And I actually did an episode about this. And Kenyans was like, In my DMs, in the comments, they were like, everybody knows not to trust fundies, which are like craftsmen. (laughs) And they were telling me which tribes to go to, which tribes not to go to, that sort of thing. The second thing is I came here just like really wanting to connect with a community. Like I really wanted to have a tribe. And so I jumped into this expat group and... I began to realize slowly but surely, like who was genuine and who wasn't. And I've had to pull back and I'm happier. I have more peace in my life, but it's those two things. So the poverty mindset. And then also, again, going back to community, we are social beings. No matter where we go in the world, most of us will want to have some sort of community But getting in where you fit in, that can be more challenging as an adult than one would imagine. So I had to ask Tadre, because I could already hear y'all being like, but what about the dating? What's what's going on with that? (laughs) So I asked Tadre, what has been her experience dating abroad and in Nairobi? I had some wake-up calls when I was much younger dating abroad in Africa. I learned that if you go into a man's bedroom, the expectation is that you will be having sex. And so I literally had to fight this dude off of me and then was blamed by the people in my group. Like, what you go back there for in the first place? I wanted to have a conversation where it was quiet, legit. And I wasn't even interested in the dude like that, but I found his conversation interesting. So I don't know if that's really, I wouldn't say that has been my experience this time around, but I would say in the early nineties, yes. My experience dating as a woman who is like almost 50 in Africa has been interesting because let's say like a place like Uganda, People get married so early, relatively, compared to the U.S. They marry by 25. And so who am I date that's single? (laughs) It's a lot of, um, I would say, rather socially acceptable infidelity 
there. In a place like Zanzibar, where I lived for a year, it's predominantly Muslim. The men can have multiple wives and they looking at me like, okay, you about to be wife number five. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm not. And so as consequently, women that come to that island and they're single, they end up with beach boys and they're just men for hire. You know what I'm saying? It's just like love for sale. You know how women go to Jamaica, right? To get their groove back. Zanzibar is one of those places. In fact, I would argue that all of coastal Africa is just one of those places where you'll find people who migrate from the mainland or from the interior of the country to go to the coast to just live their best life off of somebody else. So dating, like I had a little stint with a beach boy in Zanzibar. I knew what it was going into it, but I didn't know what it was. Now I believe he's living his best life in Austria. He hit jackpot and he got some woman to marry him and take him back to Austria. They have a child together. Oh my God. Anyway, my dating experience in Africa has been a mixed bag. Since I've been in Kenya, um, I've had quite a few interactions with African-American men, and I'm currently seeing an African-American man who is age appropriate and, you know, recently divorced. (laughs) Otherwise, I'm really dealing with, if I chose to, the pool would be Kenyan men who were married, Kenyan men who are not marriage material. And that's hard to come by because the bar is so low for men. It's a particularly patriarchal place compared to the U.S. And then younger guys in their 30s. (laughs) (laughs) which nothing wronger with the younger guys is just ah, that wouldn't be my first choice. Todger is also a black woman podcaster. And, you know, we support black women, everything here at Flourish in the Foreign. And her podcast is called Blackzit to Africa. I asked Tadre to tell me what her podcast is about, what were some of the topics that they discuss, and of course, where you all can find it. So I do have a podcast. It is called Blackzit to Africa. The goal, our mission is to encourage people of African descent to return home. There are 54 countries in Africa. Pick one. And to those people who are arguing for our limitations, I hear all kinds of reasons why we shouldn't live in Africa. I'm like, look, we want to come to that motherfucker in the first place. I don't understand why we clinging so hard to the U.S. True, we built it. True, we made it. We are the soul of that country. But how many times does somebody have to tell you we don't want you? We have a very abusive relationship with the U.S. The U.S. is like, if I can't have you, nobody can. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'd rather kill you. You know what I'm saying? Before you leave me, you guys are going to go there. You're going to take people's jobs, this, that, and the third. I'm like, no, you come here already knowing 
what type of business you are going to launch with your African partners. That's so important. My cousin is a truck driver and he was just like, cuz I want to come and be with you. And can I get a job working as a truck driver here? I'm like, I don't think you want to do that here. That's a very different experience. The roads are different. The pay is not what you expected because in the US, the pay is good. You sacrifice your health and your family, but the pay is amazing. So we're on YouTube and also on Spotify and also Afropods. And Afropods is a collection of podcasts from Africa. And I originally wanted to start out on Spotify, but one thing people should know, I don't know if this is the same in Spain, there are a lot of apps where the features are not available here. So for me, with with Anchor, which is under Spotify, right? With Anchor, the video feature was unavailable and access to Spotify's whole music library unavailable. And I had the whole thing just broke down, like what it was going to sound like, what it was going to look like. And those two features were unavailable. So I started on YouTube first and just migrated over to Spotify actually last week. I'm interviewing other Africans that are here, whether they be like Afro-Brit, African-American, about their experiences here in terms of dating, launching a business, spirituality. And then I'll do like a few, I've done a few episodes just like, okay, this is what I love about Kenya. This is what I dislike about Kenya. I've talked to, you know, wives about raising children here, about wifing here, all types of things. And I just, the whole focus is to encourage us to come back. And one of the things that stops us is this notion that Africans don't like us, that we won't fit in, that we'll stand out. They don't see us as black. They don't see us as African. That personally has not been my experience, but I do not disregard when someone else has had that experience. Identity is very fluid. In one context, I'm African. In another, I'm African-American. In another, I'm a I'm a member of Delta Sigma Theta. Identity is very fluid. The other thing, like this stereotype we have about Africans is that everyone is dark-skinned. <laughs> And so for some people, people in my family, they're like, they're lighter skinned. They don't want to get called out. They don't want to be otherized. And so that is holding them back from coming here. I'm like, yeah, it's a lot of people here, especially in the major cities, right? Who are lighter than me, whose hair is straighter than mine. So don't get caught up in the phenotype. And I remember I was in Uganda and I met a woman who grew up in London. Her parents were Caribbean and she was married to Ugandan. And she was like, you know, they will never accept you. Just know that they will never accept you. And I was just listening to her because that was her truth. And I'm like, I ain't come here for nobody to accept me. I came here for a lifestyle change, the urban green spaces, the proximity to the ocean. And I stayed because of the well-being that I have here. 
I asked Tadre to share some of her advice for those of you who are interested in black sitting to Africa or more specifically moving to Nairobi, Kenya. Visit first. I know a couple of people that just moved here sight unseen based on watching YouTube videos and they're perfectly happy. But me personally, I would say visit first. And also Africa can be a lot on the senses. So when you come here, I like to say you have to have new eyes. You can't look at Africa with the same filter that you would if you were in the global north. And also like you watching YouTube videos, like that's a great way to figure out like the feel of a country, how people of your same cultural geographical background, how they are perceiving a place that you want to be. One of the things that has always helped me out is jumping into those expat groups. Now they can be very problematic. They can be very elitist, but once you join and you see the threads, you see what people are talking about, you see where they're going, you see the types of businesses and what they need and how they're getting those things that they need, then you can get a good understanding of a place. So before I would travel to, let's say, Rwanda, I joined the Rwandan expat group or expats in Kigali, whatever, just to see what's happening there. (laughs) And like I said, problematic, but I'm silent in those groups. I'm just watching. I'm looking for information. I do offer consultations to people who are moving to Kenya. So just helping you dip your feet in the water, where you should go, who you should talk to, what neighborhoods you should be in, the schools, just helping people connect the dots. Recently, a woman arrived from the U.S. and her parents are African and she was having a really difficult time. Her first, like you think about any every bad thing that could happen to a person in a new country, it happened to her in the first week. So she really needed to talk to someone and I met with her and I feel better about her being here. Cause you know, it's just kind of like, oh, one of your own is here and they're struggling and it just makes me feel a way. You out here? No, you can't be out here by yourself. Let me help you in any way that I can. I know that a lot of what I've said can be looked at as a negative. And I don't want to paint a picture like Africa, Kenya, East Africa, what have you, is a utopia. I want to be real with people, right? For me, the good outweighs the bad. And the fact that I don't have to get up every day and deal with white inferiority complex. Some people call it white supremacy, but (laughs) that doesn't really exist. The fact that I don't have to deal with that on a regular basis, not even on a monthly basis, that is just like, (sighs) and black men in particular say that they feel safer here. Soft life, the best life, the only way to do life. If y'all haven't caught my episode and IG live about soft life, soft life in particular to moving abroad and building a business abroad, I don't know where y'all been, but go ahead and check that out. Speaking of soft life, I asked Tadre what were her thoughts on soft living? 
Yeah, I'm all for the soft life. We are people, African-Americans and Black South Africans as well. We are a people who are descendants of women who were domestics, who were forced to work, and men as well. But I specifically, I think about my grandmother who was a domestic And I think about her mother who also, you know, they had their own side hustles, right? But they worked hard. My grandfathers, they worked in a steel mill. So I feel like they did the work so I wouldn't have to. I remember being in law school and one of my white American friends, she was cleaning rooms at local motel to make ends meet. And she was like, you're trying to talk me into it. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. And she was looking at me like, oh, so you're too good. I'm like, no, my grandmothers did that for me. That's not a path that I need to go down. So definitely the soft life is afforded to people who have means. So there's that. But I'm all for it. And that's another perk to being in a developing nation. Labor is cheap. So you can afford to have a nanny. You can afford to have a live-in housekeeper, a chef. Right now, my mom is living with me and I can afford to have a caregiver here with us. I couldn't do that in the States. Wellness. What does wellness mean to you? What does it mean in the context of moving abroad, living abroad is something that I ponder every single day, truly. And so I asked Tadre, what is her personal definition of wellness? And how has that definition, perhaps that practice evolved as she has lived abroad? That's such a yummy question because wellness It can be so many things, but to me, it's like Yoni Steams. It's a slower pace of life. It's being able to commune with my friends when I want to, because I'm an introvert. So I don't always want to, you know, being able to come into my living room and sit down and read a book, going into my kitchen and just doing a kitchen mask with whatever I have in there, be it activated charcoal or cinnamon or turmeric or whatever it is. That's wellness for me. And then not having to deal with these micro and macro aggressions that we deal with in the global north, in the skin that we're in. That's why I stay here. Because Asia is cheaper. Like Asia is the for real soft life. You got people paying $200 a month and they have their own private swimming pool. You know what I'm saying? So what really keeps me in here in Africa is just... I'm able to blend in. I'm able to be myself. I'm not fetishized. I'm not a novelty. That's not something that I'm looking for personally. So that's wellness. Wellness for me is eating fresh food. Zanzibar more than any place, but it was like the first time I had really fresh food in a long time. Your produce don't last but a few days. Imagine that. 
You got to eat that quick. I'm like, what? What is happening here? The first time I had like fresh food in Zanzibar, the brain synapses in my head, they were just pop, pop. They were just firing. Like, what is this? And that is wellness. You, and, you know, just watching people mature. My generation, the baby boomers, my mom as well. I'm just like, your wellness is your health. And also your wellness is your meditation, your soul journey. So that's something I'm able to do before I hop out the bed is I'm able to just go through my rituals. (laughs) I light my candle. I put my essential oils in there and just really meditate and center myself before I go out into the world and impact it with energy that may not serve me or anyone else. Thank you so much, Tadre, for just being an amazing, wonderful guest. I really appreciate not only your candor, but just like your wonderful personality. Just your wonderful, beautiful personality. For those of you that want to keep up with Tadre, you can via social media. So on Instagram, I'm at Beauty is Universal, UG. And for YouTube, Beauty is Universal. It's like Beauty underscore is underscore Universal. You can find me there. Those are the two main social media platforms that I'm on. If you're interested in fashion, I also have a series on Quayley TV. If you have a subscription, it's called Off the Beaten Path. It's about international travel and fashion. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And for more information about our guest, be sure to check out this episode's show notes on the website, flourishtotheforeign.com. That's where you'll see pictures, a full bio, and ways that you can connect with this guest. Big thanks to Zachary Higgs, who produced the music of this podcast. And for those of you that want to stay connected with the podcast, be sure to be subscribed to our email newsletter at flourishintheforeign.com. If you have a question that you'd like to ask me, be sure to ask that question. The link to submit questions to me is in the description of this episode. If you are considering a move abroad, I suggest you grab the Moving Abroad with Intention Guide. It is the perfect first step for you to get clear and confident and start to develop a strong intention for your move abroad. It's a guide with over 43 pages, all designed to help you get honest about what you're looking for when you move abroad and help you define what a life well lived abroad means and what the criteria must be for your move abroad to support that life. You can grab that guide at the website flourishintheforeign.com on our resources page. Also, there's a link in the description of this episode. If you enjoy Flourish in the Foreign and you are interested in possibly becoming a digital nomad, then I have the podcast for you. The Maverick Show, hosted by Matt Bowles, who is an amazing, amazing real estate investor, 
podcaster, and overall just really great person, to be honest. Matt has been in the podcasting game, digital nomad space, location-dependent space, way before it was buzzworthy, trendy, or anything like that. So if you're interested in hearing more stories from long-term digital nomads who globetrot on their own terms, or learning about how real estate investment can fund your life abroad, go check out the Maverick Show podcast and check out Matt and his company and how he helps people to identify real estate opportunities to fund their location-independent lifestyle. All of this information is in the description of this episode. And of course, you can learn more about Matt and his real estate services at themaverickshow.com. Remember, it's not about moving abroad. It's not about being abroad. It's about flourishing abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next time. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. You basically just said that you had dreams and then your kid came along and your dreams got crushed. My daughter is not a dream killer. That's not what she is. I had a dream to travel the world for a year. My daughter was the catalyst to make me do it because I wanted her to know from my example that she could do the same things, right? Whenever it's her turn to dream, whenever she has something big and some huge goal that she wants to accomplish, she can do that. So for me, it wasn't my daughter's here, I can't do it now. It's my daughter's here, I must do it now.